the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Today's guest, Corporal Frank Reed. So when I got to Germany, I really realized what the Cold War was, how close we actually were to obliterating each other. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. I hope that everyone enjoyed my April Fool's episode. It was a long time planning. I'm grateful that Greg Briggs was able to jump in and be the host. Ever since that episode went up, I've been way too busy to do any editing or any effort on the podcast and on the show, so I hope I haven't disappointed anybody. Just trying to keep things in balance. I did say at the beginning of this production that sometimes life is going to get in the way of producing this podcast, and that's exactly what happened in the last two weeks. But don't worry, I've got some guests recorded now. Hopefully I can find some more recording time and put some more effort into the show and get some more episodes out for you to listen to. A couple of weeks ago, I put the message out there that I wanted to get some members of the Royal Canadian Navy involved in the podcast, and I do have a guest slated to be recorded very soon. Hopefully sometime in May, we'll have our first guest from the Royal Canadian Navy. That's a little bit misleading because Chief Warrant Officer Kevin West did start off in the Royal Canadian Navy. However, he currently wears the Air Force uniform. So technically, Chief Warrant Officer Kevin West was our first Navy guest, but we're going to get a guest who is currently serving in the Navy. Speaking about guests, today's guest is Corporal Frank Reed of the Royal Canadian Regiment. Corporal Reed spent eight years in the Canadian Army as a soldier. Some of that was done in a formation known as 3rd Mechanized Commando. Since he left the Canadian Forces in 1979, he's devoted his time to being an author and a playwright. He's a published author, and the title of his book is 1972 to 1979, A Canadian Soldier at Peace. He's currently working on a documentary based on interviewing ex-military personnel. Here's my interview with Corporal Frank Reed. Corporal Reed, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. Glad to be here. So you and I met through a Facebook post that I wrote on the page of the Royal Canadian Regiment. Yes, we did, Mike. I had posted a series of posts of some of the Royal Canadian Regiment members that I had interviewed. For example, Chief Warrant Officer Carl DeRocher, Sergeant Chris Murdy, and many other Royal Canadians. Yes, Mike, that was interesting when I saw your post on the Royal Canadian Regiment. I use a lot of social media because I do a lot of writing for different places around the world and in the different countries and things like that. So I use the mess tent, which is a very good one. It's a lot of a lot of people from all the different branches of the forces are on there, and it's a good way to keep communication open. I am very heavily into LinkedIn. I also do a lot of work on tweeting and other stuff like that, and I do blogs for three or four places, one in the States, uh, one in Ireland, and one in Canada. So it's much different than when we were young, and you put a, put a letter in the mail and hope for the best. <laughs> you talked about the mess tent. Is that available on Facebook to everyone? The mess tent is only available to people that served. So it's the type of, well, people who served and their spouses, actually. So what you have to do is go in and they ask you basically when you served and what you did. Then they check it out and they'll allow you to come on if you've, if you've got military background or if you've disposed of the military background. But that's the only way. It's not, uh, it's not an open website. Excellent. And that's on Facebook, right? That's on Facebook, yeah. Under the mess tent.com. Sounds good. 
I sent you the questions last night, actually, because we had a little bit of problems communicating over the March break. But nevertheless, did you have a chance to review them before bedtime? Oh, yes, I had a chance to look at them. I'm a, I'm a night owl. I'm up pretty late and I'm up pretty early. <laughs> so I had a good chance to look. Excellent. Why don't you tell me why you chose to join the Canadian Armed Forces? Well, I'm from down east. I'm from Nova Scotia. I always wanted to join the military. It was something I always wanted to do. Even though I really have no relatives who were in the military, the only one was an uncle who was killed in World War II. I just wanted to see the world. I, I didn't want to be stuck in Nova Scotia my whole life, not that Nova Scotia is a bad place. So I thought, what am I going to do? And I worked for a few years at dead-end jobs, and I decided, you know what? I'm going to join the military, and I'm going to get a chance to, uh, to do something different. So you're, you mentioned your uncle. Which unit did he serve with? I, I don't know exactly where because my mother and father are both dead. And I knew that my uncle had been in the military and had been killed in, in World War II, but they never really talked about it. That was the only person I knew that was ever in the military. Right. Or not knew, but the only person I knew of that was ever in the military. So you didn't even know if he was in the Navy or the Army or anything? He was Army. I know he was Army. But that's all I know. Like they said, they said he was killed in France or Germany. He was killed in Europe during the either during the invasion or after. Right. So I, I get the impression he was army, but I well, I even can't be sure about that. There are some interesting sites run by the government of Canada that allow us to research our relatives, and maybe I'll put a link to that up in the show notes, and maybe you can find out some more because I know that the Canadian Archives have a lot of details, and they do release that to family members. That would be excellent because, you know, it would be nice to, to do some research on that and find out because, again, when parents die when you're young, you don't really have a, don't really get a chance to talk about that or people just don't talk about that by, by nature a lot of times. Right. So which unit did you choose to join when you signed up? I wanted to be in the infantry and it was, a, it was kind of strange. I went up to Kingston. I had hitchhiked up to Kingston. I met with the captain that was doing the recruiting and I said I wanted to be infantry. He looked at me like I was crazy, and he said, uh, well, we could offer you some other things. So he offered me a number of other things. He offered me uh, engineers, and he offered me military police, and he offered me a couple of other ones. And I said, no, I want to be in the infantry. And he said, but why? And I said, well, I just want to be in the infantry, and I want to, I want to travel around. And finally, he did put me in, but I think he must have thought I was a little bit batty. <laughs> <laughs> so you joined which unit? Well, I went to Cornwallis, and when I came out, I ended up with uh, 1RCR in London, Ontario. Right. I arrived in London, Ontario in 1973. It was an interesting time because it was a time when the whole, actually the whole course of Cornwallis moved to London and they were uh, getting, a lot of people were getting out and a lot of new people were there. And with two years in London, there was almost like a turnover of like four or 500 people. And all the people in London were just kids. Wow. 19, 20, 21 year old kids, all the older people were retiring and and it was a good time. It was just before Cyprus, so it was a really good time. It was interesting. It changed the city a little bit. <laughs> right. Something interesting you just said, I just picked up on. Now, when you went to Cornwallis, did you know which regiment you were joining, or did you just know the trade you were joining? Oh, no, I just knew the trade. They never told anybody anything. Nothing. When The, the course before us was all sent to PPCLI out in Winnipeg. Right. And we were sent, all of us, to London. And there was, I think, 36 of us or 37 of us. And all of us were sent to London. So it was, it was kind of interesting because our whole group got to work together, not only down there, but when we come up to, to London, we were already a cohesive group to some extent. And we got to do the, uh, you know, the, the next pay level together. And it was, it was interesting because you had some history with the people. It wasn't like right. going into a place where you were just you and you didn't know who was there. You had people that you'd been dealing with for three months and you trusted. 
Right. I don't think that's the model they use today, but that's very interesting. You still in touch with everybody? I'm in touch with about three or four people, and that's all. Because after I'd get out of the military, most of the people I'd been with had stayed in. Or a lot of the people I'd dealt with for years in Germany, when they were posted back to Canada, as you know, I was with 3 Mechanized Commando, and 3 Mechanized Commando was different than basically any other military unit, I think, in Canada. They used to get people coming in and leaving constantly. They did the old American um, bases of two people rotate in, two people rotate out. Right. And there was people from all the different TPCLIs, people from all the different RCRs. We even had some Vendus. They were all part of 3 Mech Commando. But there was a constant in and out. The master corporal would have been there two years when I got there. So two years after I got there, he left, but somebody came into the PPCLI to take his place. Right. And the captain would leave, and somebody from RCR would come in to take his place. Wow. The three-neck commando only lasted seven years, from 1970 to 1977. And then they, they got rid of it and rebadged everybody to, to RCR. Wow. It was a strange beast because we were out there and all working together. And it was an amazing thing that we could. People from all different units and all different, all different parts of the country. Right. So after I got out, and I was in Ontario, a lot of these people were still in Germany. And when they get back, they went to Petawal, but some went to, out to BC, some went to Alberta. And, you know, I lost touch with a lot. Some I'm still in really close contact with. I've got a couple of still down in London. Right. That I still go down and visit. A lot of the people I keep in contact with through Facebook and LinkedIn. Excellent. What was the world like when you joined? The world was a strange thing. I mean, <laughs> was. But the Cold War was going on, but I didn't know it was the Cold War. I was just a young, ignorant kid, and I didn't know anything, realistically. And uh, when I joined the military, I thought, rah, 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 I want to go out there and want to do my thing, right? So when I got to Germany, I really realized what the Cold War was, how close we actually were to obliterating each other. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, like when we used to do the huge exercises in Germany with like 200,000 people, and you'd move them up towards the Soviet border shake your fist at Russian bear and say, blah, blah, blah. It was insane. <laughs> somebody in Russia had his finger on a button, right? Yeah. And somebody in the States had their finger in the button. And if either one had pushed it, we'd all be gone. Yeah. And then we went over there and we made it our, our sole purpose in life to irritate the Russians. <laughs> that was what the Cold War was like for me. That's the way I felt about it. I was young and I didn't care. I, I really enjoyed it. Well, I remember in 1989, we went up to the Hof border, H-O-F, mm -hmm. Hof border. And this was a three-way border between East and West Germany and Czechoslovakia. And we all had to wear raincoats and our field cap back in the day. Mm -hmm. And we weren't allowed to have any insignias. Everybody was meant to be identical. And the rain jacket, what that did, that hit any unit insignia or any mm -hmm. rank insignia or yep. name tags. We had our rain jackets on, our plain field cap on, and our hands in our pockets. We weren't allowed to point at anything. And we just walked up to the three-way border. And I could see my opposite number in the tower with his AK-47 <laughs> leaning in the window. Yeah. And here we were. We were completely unarmed. No web gear, no weapons, nothing. No. Just get off the bus and look at them. His buddy was scrambling. He was on the phone and taking notes. And the other guy, he had his binos up and he's surveying the crowd and doing a head count. Mm -hmm. And his partner's there scrambling, taking notes and counting us all and trying to figure out who we were and what we were up to. <laughs> we were standing around with our hands in our pockets. But we were under specific instructions. Keep your hands in your pockets. Don't point at anything. Just look. 
you're here for the experience and then get back on the bus. But it was a very interesting little experience. We did something like that once up at the Americans. There's this one spot on the border where the Americans have a place where if you're standing behind there and you look out, it actually looks like you're behind the barbed wire fence. <laughs> and the Americans told us the same thing. They said, if you point a camera at them, it'll have to shoot you. <laughs> so, okay, don't think we'll be doing that today. <laughs> same kind of thing. They took us up there just to show us what it was like. Yeah. But they told us specifically, under no circumstances are you to take any pictures or, or do anything silly. Yeah. You started off saying what you were like when you joined. You said you were hitchhiking, looking for a new experience. Anything else about what you were like when you joined? I had worked at about, I didn't play well with others. And I worked with about, for two years before I joined, the time I was 17, the time I was 19, I had worked at about 15 different jobs. And I, I just didn't, like I said, I just didn't play well with other people. I wasn't a really a good team player. The last job I had before I got in the military was I was actually head bartender at a really bad bar. It was an awful place. All people did was fight all night. <laughs> the thing that pushed me over the edge to make me join was there was a big fight one night, and I get in it, and I get hit, and some guy drove me all across the bar, and I'm looking up at the table saying, why am I doing this? <laughs> and the next day, I hitchhiked up to Kingston and joined because I didn't have a car. I didn't have money for a car. I hitchhiked right. up to Kingston and joined. I figured to myself at that point, can it really be any worse? <laughs> can it be any worse than what I'm doing? And I'm really, really glad I did. Like, I never regretted a moment of it. Now, you said you started in Halifax? I'm originally from Antigonish, Nova Scotia. And when I was really young, before my mother died, she moved up to Halifax. Right. So I was in Halifax. I was getting in with the wrong crowd. So my, my mother and my sister and me, we moved up to Ontario. And I guess it was to to get me into maybe some better influences. Right. And so I was in I was in Ontario. So I was in Ontario and I joined. They sent me back to Cornwallis and they sent me back to London. The first time that I went in to join, they wouldn't let me join because my although I was living in Brockville, Ontario at that time, and Brockville's area was Kingston. But there was a recruiting office down in Perth, which was only like a few miles away. And I went there. After they filled out all the paperwork, they tore it up and said, you can't sign up here. You have to sign up in Kingston. And I thought, this is asinine. And so after that, that's when I went to work in the bar because I thought, well, maybe the military isn't for me. Right. I thought that was some dumb. And of course, there was no cell phones then and no, no email. You couldn't just pop the information down. Right. And the captain told me, oh, he said, you're in the wrong district. You're in XXX district and you have to sign up in Kingston, which was, like I said, an hour and a half away. It was had to hitchhike. Wow. And I thought, that doesn't make any sense. But again, after that, I didn't go right up and join again. I went back and got another job, worked in the bar. And, and then finally, I said, okay, time to take the jump. Yeah. So moving on, what's your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces or your greatest achievement? My most memorable experience, I think, was... I would have to say there's two. One, when I was in Cyprus, one night me and another person were on an observation post. It was about three o'clock in the morning, and it was one of these beautiful nights when the moon was out and it was glorious and the top of the building, and we're standing there talking to each other. We're within about maybe 10 inches of each other. Our faces are close together because we're listening and we're supposed to be listening to the radio, and we're talking, and, and then we heard bang and we heard whoosh 
to this day, I believe that round went right in between the two of us. And our faces were no more than eight inches apart. And I thought, you know what? That could have just as easily been me. Yeah. And I think that was the first time, it didn't bother me, but I think that was the first time I realized that being in a situation like that was really dangerous, even though you know it's dangerous, right? Especially when the, the Turkish and the Greek uh, shooting at each other constantly, which they were in, at that time. It was, a, it was just a kind of an eye-opener to say, well, that just happened, and then we just went back to talking as if nothing had ever happened. Because then you like, well, what can you do? Right. We we're supposed to call in telling every time there was a shot, and, and we honestly, we didn't even bother calling it in. We thought, that's pretty futile. <laughs> and anyway, it was that, that's just the way it was. And then the second one, I think, was when I went with 3 Mech Commando, the idea that everybody from all over Canada could become a cohesive force and get together, and even though... As you know, being in the military, usually the units are always fighting with each other. Right. <laughs> they are. And when we went over there, we had people from the Airborne, the Vandu, and all the Patricias and all the different RCRs. We had our little issues with each other. But as a group, we focused. We became a force that was very cohesive and very good at what we did. And I think that was amazing for somebody like us. I wasn't really a team player. That was a really amazing thing that we could all come together and we could all make something out of a group of people like that. Right. It was amazing because, like I said, we'd bring some, somebody would come in from the Patricias and, and he'd know nobody. What they always did, it has a buddy, a buddy system where somebody was assigned to stay with the guy for the first three weeks right. and get him settled in. You'd find, if he was outside the economy, you'd, put him, you'd find him an apartment, you'd get everything done, you'd be the one going around with him. So when he was looking for equipment or anything, you basically took him by the hand and held his hand to some extent and, and took him all around and made sure that he wasn't left by himself. Really, like, I mean, he left by himself, but you know what I mean. You, you yeah. were there for a sounding board. So if he said, listen, I got to pick this up at store, say, okay, John, let's go. We'll go over and we'll do it now. Uh, for about two, three weeks, you were his buddy. Yeah. It was a great system because he had no friends there, maybe. Yeah. You were his friend. And by extension, anybody that was your friend was his friend. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's true. And then, and then in three weeks, he settled in. Whereas I think if he had to come over by himself and nobody was taking care of him to some extent, I mean, he would have survived, Yeah. but it just made, it made the transition a lot easier for everybody, and uh, everybody got a chance to be that, you know, like a, a private would take a private around, a corporal take a corporal around, a captain take a captain around, and it was, uh, it was a pretty neat, pretty neat system. Right, absolutely. Please come back and listen to part two of the interview with Corporal Frank Reed. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at mikelacroixcmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. End tag music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. 
Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix Production.